Last uh, two weeks have uh, they've just been agonizing for me <laughs> when it comes to uh, getting a sermon ready. And part of it's because I just know that God's working on my own heart. I'm in process, and I hope you guys allow for me to be a person in process. Um, I'm on a journey. And, and so, yeah, I'll just stop there. Um, the second thing, and I really felt this really strong at the beginning of the week, and then Friday night I was almost to the point where I was just going to pull the whole sermon off the table. Because my heart more and more is getting to the point where this church needs to become the sermon. And you guys are becoming the sermon. And so while we have looked at God's word and hopefully value has been pushed into this community, next week you will be the sermon. Okay? And if you feel like you want to be a part of the sermon in light of something that you're doing on your street corner, again, it's not bragging. It's simply, this is what God's allowed for me to do. If you want to be part of that sermon, call me this week, okay? And uh, we better have our biggest turnout here next week as well. Can I just get an amen of affirmation? Just knowing, okay, good, good, good. Um, also, I, I, we're going to probably allow for a little Q&A because I think as we've looked at some of this stuff as well, um, that as a community, we need to ask some questions. And so that might be a part of it as well. All right, let's uh, dive in. And hopefully, by now, some things are starting to kind of sink into your heart, into your mind. Um, Number one is this. God has intense love and compassion for every race, every tribe, every people group on the face of the earth. And that God especially... Here's the cries, the za'akah of the oppressed. Number two, that God is looking for a partner. A partner to change the world. And he doesn't just save people so that they can bide their time on earth and wait for heaven. But God saves, he redeems, he restores so that we can partner with him to change and redeem and restore all of creation. We're blessed to be a blessing. Number three, this idea of the city is so central to what God is doing in the world. We know it's God's end goal. It's where all of redemption is moving. The Bible begins in a garden, and it ends with a city. And so God's ultimate victory, his final expression of redemption, is going to be in the shape of a city. Now, a city, though, is not just the end, but hopefully by now, too, you're starting to understand it's also the means that God's going to use to get to that end. He's going to use a city, a specific kind of city, to reach the city. Now let's turn to Jeremiah 29. 
And I'm just going to say at the outset that in this sermon, more than any other sermon, I am so indebted to people like Tim Keller. And I don't know if you know that name, but if you don't, just do a search on the web and get to know this guy. Um, James Boyce is another one. He writes this book, uh, Two Cities, Two Loves, which helps a guy like me who can't make, doesn't want to read The City of God by Augustine, which is really probably the greatest work and really defines a lot of the things that we're looking at. But he makes it, for less smart guys like me, easy to understand a great work like that. Harvey Kahn is also another person who has just some awesome insights uh, into the things that we're looking at. But let's turn to Jeremiah 29, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is found on page 557, if you have a Bible like mine. And I'm just going to skip down to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And there you have it, the two cities. And the Bible really is a tale of these two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. Build houses. And settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. And give daughters, your daughters, in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace, the shalom of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For if it experiences shalom, you too will experience shalom. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. And do not let those prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams, to the dreams you encourage them to have. <laughs> They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. And you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so we're back where? We're back in Babel. In fact, every time you see the word Babylon in the Old Testament, it is the word Babel. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we get back here? How did God's people get back here? Well, the Babylonians have come in and they have pillaged God's promised land. They've destroyed the temple, and they've deported 
the best of God's people back to Babylon, this foreign city probably thousands of miles away. Now, some of you might be asking, um, why does God allow for things like this? And if you're asking that question, I, I think it's a good question because I don't think God allowed for this. I think God caused it. And you ask, well, why would God cause this kind of thing? I mean, just imagine right now if this was us. If all of a sudden we were just uprooted from where we live and deported to Babylon, to Iraq. Well, here's why God, according to the prophets, did this. It's because they failed in two important relationships. First of all, they failed in their relationship, or better yet, their marriage with God. In fact, in Jeremiah 2, and this is my paraphrase of what God said to them. He says to them, do you remember, Israel, when we were lovers? Do you remember our honeymoon in the desert? What happened? Why have you forsaken me, the spring of living water, for these broken cisterns that can't even hold stale water? You're unfaithful, Israel. The second place where Israel failed not just in their relationship with God, but just as significantly, their relationship to the world. We saw this last week in Jonah. Jonah's failure really shows us Israel's failure. Israel's failure was this. They refused to partner with God. And so, like that vine that God planted and caused to grow over Jonah, providing shade, God now, he, he takes that vine away from Israel. If all you want is my shade, but you refuse to partner with me to be shade to the world, I'll take that vine away. I can't help but wonder if God's taking vines away today. So here they are now in Babylon, Babel, thousands of miles away from home, living in a strange land, among exiles from all over the world, Persians, Asians, Africans, and they're asking this question, how are we now to do life in this wicked city? How are we to relate to Babylon? Now, the Babylonians also had their own agenda for what they wanted to do with all these exiles. Because here's the deal. The Babylonians were faced with a significant challenge. What are you to do 
with all these people groups that you've just conquered. And they probably learned through trial and error that you can't just push them down as slaves or they're going to rise up. You can't just drive them out or else they're going to come back madder than before. And so they really developed this ingenious idea. They realized that the most productive way to annihilate a people group is by assimilating that people group into your culture, into your religion, and into your way of life. And in so doing, you'll make them just like us. And so rather than push them down, rather than push them out, what the Babylonians did is they just, they just brought them in, they took their best, the most prominent, they took them right into the heart of their great city where their culture flourished into Babylon. They gave them the best education. They gave them the best jobs. They gave them the best food with this idea that in time, they'll become just like us. In fact, this is exactly what you read in the book of Daniel. They took Israel's top guns, gave them new names, gave them the best education, gave them a high rank, food from the king's table, all with this idea. If we assimilate them into our world and way of life in one, maybe two generations, we will have annihilated them by making them just like us. Now, if you look at the previous chapters, Jeremiah 27 and 28, you'll see that these prophets knew exactly what the Babylonians were doing. And so the prophets warned them. In fact, one of their prophecies was this. People of Israel, two years. In two years, God's going to destroy this wicked city. So just stay outside. Do life within your people. Circle the wagons. Play it safe in the burbs. And at best, you can use the city to serve you and to serve your people. Don't participate in it. God's going to destroy it. Now put yourself best you can in their shoes. What do you do? By the way, I think these are the two great temptations of the church. To either isolate ourselves, circle the wagons, or to accommodate to the world around us and to become just like it. If either one of those things happen, we're nothing. We're annihilated. So Jeremiah steps into this situation and says something that really is probably shocking, at least for the hearers uh, that received this. I like, first of all, what he says in verse 8, he says, don't listen to all those other prophets. They're all false prophets. But in verse 6, he says this, don't decrease, but increase. Meaning this, and that's not just about number, that's about quality. That's about who you are in God. Don't you dare become like them. Don't you dare 
decrease. In this place, you are to increase. You are to become all that God called you to be and made you to be. Be distinct. And be more distinct than you've ever been before. The second thing he says is this in verse 5. He says, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. And what's he saying, basically? Hey, you're going to be here a while, all right? This isn't just going to be a two-year deal. And so he's telling them, just settle there. Do life there. Eat their food, buy and sell, participate in the city, in the business of the city, in the real estate of the city. Don't stay on the fringe. Don't settle on the outskirts. Don't play it safe, but move in. And then he says, and... Seek the peace, the shalom of Babylon. Pray for Babylon. Seek the shalom of this city who killed grandpas and grandpas and moms and dads and children, and wiped out your temple, and ex exported you, or deported you from your homeland. Seek their peace. Pray for them. Pray for Babylon. Pray for Sodom. Pray for Gomorrah. Again, I think we see here, the Bible is a tale of two cities. The city of man, which the Bible names Babylon, and the city of God, which, God, which the Bible names Jerusalem. And we see these two cities now at the beginning of God's story. We now see these cities in the middle of God's story. And if you read Revelation 18, 19, 20, and 21, and 22, you see these two cities at the end of God's story. And these cities couldn't be more different. Babylon, or the city of man, is characterized by pride and selfishness. It's the place where you go and you make a name for yourself. It's the place where you need to prove yourself. It's the place where you grab power. It's the place where you climb the ladder. It's the place where you're trying with all your might to make it to the top. It's the place where it's all about you. About you saving yourself. About you defining yourself. About you creating yourself. As a result, Babylon is its name. It's confusion. It's chaos. It's the place of exhaustion and burnout. 
And it's also the place of oppression. Because in this game of survival of the fittest, the weak always get trampled. And I think this is why we flee the city. I think this is why the church has historically avoided the city. I think it's why some of us are disgusted with cities. And I think it's why many of us settle down in the burbs of the country. And I think many of us, as we do life here in the city of man, almost forget that there is another city. Which is what? The city of God. The Bible calls it Jerusalem. And what marks this city is shalom. It's peace. Like that's what Jerusalem means. City of peace. Now, you have peace today? Are you restful? I'm not saying are you tired because you didn't get much sleep last night. If you just search your heart right now, is there peace there? Is there rest? See, I, I, I think that we have a kind of a shallow understanding of the word peace. I mean, peace is just peace. What's up? All right? It's, it's, it, it, it's just the way we greet people. Or, or maybe we think it's, it's just we all get along. There's peace. All right? There's peace between me and my wife. We're getting along right now. But peace in the Bible is so much more than just getting along, peace in the Bible, shalom, it's, it, it's this idea of completeness. It's this idea of wholeness. It's, it's perfect rest. It's perfect harmony. It's, it's prosperity. It's blessing. It's this utter fulfillment that results from God's presence. In fact, I think uh, the kingdom of God will always result in peace. I think the kingdom of God is about God taking us from chaos and bringing peace, shalom, to our chaos. I, I think Isaiah 11 is one of my favorite texts that describes the peace that results from the kingdom of heaven. And, and there it describes this, this cool picture of the lion or the lamb and the wolf at peace with one another. And it's not like all of a sudden this whole survival of the fittest thing is removed and it's no longer this pecking order where the lion can, can or the lamb or the wolf can beat up the lamb but rather it's even more than that it is the the lamb and the wolf not only lie down together but they enjoy one another and so when we're talking shalom really what we're talking about is eden it's Harmony in every aspect of life. It's physical harmony. It's social harmony. It's economic harmony. It's spiritual harmony. Now, when we think about the city of God and the city of man in light of this, I think we, we think incorrectly. And this is what I think we think. Again, I'm making an overgeneralization here. But I think that most of us think that we live here in the city of man. That's where we live, and we are waiting for the city of God. So the city of man is present, and the city of God is future. And so we just kind of bide our time here on earth, living in the city of, of man. But boy, we can't wait 
for the city of God to come. See, Jesus shatters that. Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 14, he says this. You are, right now, the light of the world. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Right now, if you are a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, you are participating in the city of God. And the city of God is not just coming to church. And it's not just a church that holds services. The city of God is the exact same thing that Jeremiah is calling his people to be. To be a community within the broader community, to be the city of God moving into the city of Babylon. Where we are this alternate, distinct deal. Distinct in what way? Read the Sermon on the Mount. It's radical. Distinct in how we use sex and money. How we use the arts. How we use learning. How we use media. How we use commerce, buying and selling. How we use power, that we don't use these things for self. But these things are used in life-giving ways to serve others. So go make money. <laughs> go create wealth. Not for you. For them. We're an alternate city in, in what that guy right back there talked about. We are a city of refuge. We are a place where the weak in the world and the oppressed of the world can come and find hope. It's where the guilty can come and find mercy. It's where the oppressed can come and find protection. We're an alternate city, the city of God. Meaning, we're not about race. We're not about hierarchy. This is the place where diverse peoples, people from every tribe, every background, rich, poor, black, white, form a brotherhood. We're here. We're an alternate city because this is the place where people can encounter and experience the living God, where both religious and irreligious people are taught their desperate need for the gospel of Jesus Christ.
You want the bottom line? We are an alternate city that no longer operates by the principle that drives Babylon, your life for mine. But we are a city that operates by this principle, my life for yours. Now that's a simple statement. But just imagine if you and we, every moment of every day, lived that principle, my life for you. See, I think this is so radical. And this is why this thing messes with me because I start to ask myself, how much do I really get this? How much am I really living this? Because see, what this means for us are some things. It means then that we're not here for ourselves. And we're not here to use the city of Grand Rapids for our personal advancement. We're not here to exploit Grand Rapids for my selfish ends. We're not here to, to use Grand Rapids for my people group. And trust me on that. We got to search our hearts on that one. Why are we still thinking in terms of, of our kind and our people? Doesn't belong in the church. And we are not here to take from the city to benefit our kind. Because if we do that, trust me, this city will convert us so fast, it will annihilate us. We will become just like it. And I want to take this further. We are not here to build a great church. We don't care about that. That's not even on the radar of Crossroads. We are here for Grand Rapids. We are here to seek the full Shalom of this whole city. And so what we are to do, according to Jeremiah and according to Jesus, is we are to move in and we are to use our distinctiveness to serve this city. And in so doing, we're going to take our Shalom, the city of God, the city of peace, and we're going to bring Shalom to chaos. I hope some of you are asking this question. What are you doing, Rod? I'll tell you right now, not enough. And I know some of you are thinking right now, well, who does this? I know some. I know a few. Are there any churches like that? Are there really any people like that? Well, let me tell you something. The early church lived like that. And Tim Keller made me aware of this book, The Rise of Christianity, which is just an amazing read. It's, it's a historian. I don't even know if this guy is a believer or not. But he's asking the question, He's looking at the phenomena of this small, little, ragtag group of people 
a little cult, as he puts it. How did they move into the teeth of the Roman Empire and in three to four centuries transform that thing and convert it? And one of the things that he took notice of were during this time, there were, there were some cataclysmic events like earthquakes and plagues that went on. And he compares then the pagans with the Christians. And listen to what he says about what the pagans did. Look at their response. He says the heathen, at the first onset of the disease, speaking of the plague, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were even dead, treated the unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread of the contagion of the fatal disease. And they ran and they escaped. That's what they did. Plague comes in, we move out. Listen to what the Christians did. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Listen to this. Many, while nursing and curing the sick, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. So you know what happened? When the plagues passed, and the sick got better, they looked at these Christians and said, what are you guys doing here? What are you here for? You don't seem to be here for money. You don't seem to be here for safety. And what the Christian said is, we're not here for anything. We're not afraid of death. We don't, we don't need to be rich. We don't need to get ahead. We don't even need to live. We're here for you. We are here to seek the shalom, the peace of the city. And as a result, amongst all these pagan religions and worldviews and philosophies of life that are competing with each other, Christianity captured the minds and the hearts of those in the city, and not there long thereafter. It won the whole empire for Christ. I want us to take note of this. They didn't transform Rome, this great Babylon, by seeking power. 
by trying to take over, by putting the right people in office. Instead, they got power by not seeking power. They got power by giving up power, by giving up their lives, by living moment by moment, day by day, my life for your life. And this is what changed the world. So here's the question that I want to end with. Where do we get this passion? Where do we get this fire in our gut? Where do we get the power to live this way? Or better yet, how can we be set free from all the entanglements of living for Babylon so that we can really be the city of God and live in the city of God and the city of God living so recklessly my life for you. I could guilt you right now. Because I've been feeling guilty all week. I could come up with many creative ways right now to make all of us in this room feel guilty. How dare you? Look at how much God's given you. And you're just hoarding it all for yourselves. And it's not going to be too long from now when you're going to see him face to face and he's going to say, and what did you do with it all? And I'm not going there. <laughs> because this is not a, huh, I have to. That's not what it was for the early church. It was a burning, I want to. Why? For one reason. They knew him. They knew him. I mean, just think about this statement where it describes them. Many, as they nursed and cared for the sick, transferred the death of the dying to themselves and they died in their stead. What ethic? What religion? What philosophy of life motivates that? The reason why you and I can live my life for your life is not because we are so good or so religious or so moral. I'll speak for myself. The only reason I can live this way is because in my heart, I know a God who nursed and cared for this sick soul and who died in my place. And we see a God offers us the eternal city, not just future, but right now, the city of peace and shalom. It's because this God was willing to lose that city because he was executed where? The Bible tells outside the city gates. He lost the Jerusalem, the city of God. 
so that you and I can forever live in the city of God. Do you know this God? Do you really know him? Have you found peace with this God? Augustine, who has shaped my thinking more secondhand than firsthand on all this stuff, after spending his whole life trying to find life and sensuality and orgies, literally, and then in his career, and then in many of the religions of his day, trying to find life and taking all that he could from the world, finding himself in a place of utter despair and depression. One day as he was just broken to the core, tears coming down his face, all of a sudden he heard a voice saying, take up and read. And that voice came to him again, take up and read. Augustine knew it was the voice of God. He picked up the word of God. And he says he did one of these, just opened it and pointed. And he went right to Romans 9. God led him to Romans 9 where it says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on Christ. Put him on. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine said at that moment, Christ broke into my life, and I was set free. And it's Augustine who said it best. He said, God has made us for himself, and our souls are restless until they rest in you. Do you know that rest? Do you really have that peace? See, here's the deal. We, too, live as exiles, as sent ones to Babylon. And here's our comfort. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Plans for shalom. Not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's our anchor right there. I don't care what plague comes. I don't care what earthquake comes. I don't care if we're exported. I don't care if, if it gets really dangerous for us to move in. Guess what? There's a king on the throne who has it all planned out. And we live in his hands. But I think Jeremiah also gives us the secret to this peace. If you don't have it, and if you don't know it, and you want it, so you can be it. Here's how you do it. Then you'll call upon me, and come, and you'll pray to me, and I'll listen to you, and you'll seek me, and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's what God wants. And that's how we have peace. 
And that's why we can be peace, people of peace. And, and why we can offer peace is because we're a people that know peace because we seek him with all our heart. And as we move in, and as we move in, we're moving in, but we're seeking him. We're seeking him with all our heart. And we're moving in, and we're moving him, and we're seeking him. I'm telling you, that right there is a picture of how this church can take Grand Rapids. God, for some of us, it's just give us a heart. And God, will never have a heart for the city if we, first of all, haven't had our hearts changed by you. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who doesn't have your peace, who's still seeking peace and trying to get peace from getting from the city of man, God, I pray today, Lord, that like Augustine, God, They'd hear your voice. They'd surrender their lives and their chains would fall off. And for this community, God, I just pray that you would continue to burn things in our heart and God, that we'd be obedient, that we'd respond. That we'd respond to the things that we hear for your glory.